Well, let's open our Bibles tonight to the book of 2 Peter, chapter number 3. 2 Peter, chapter 3 tonight. This evening, we are concluding our study through the book of 2 Peter. And I've told a few people today that I've all day I've I felt almost like I was preparing to preach at a funeral or something because this is actually the conclusion of a study that we began in March of 2022. We began looking then at the life of Peter uh, from the Gospels and the book of Acts and we studied through his life for several months and and uh, then we looked in the first epistle of Peter and uh, studied what the Lord had for us there for a little while. And then uh, after a little bit of a break, we started on 2 Peter, and we've been here for a number of weeks, and tonight we finally uh, will finish this study, and I feel like I'm saying goodbye to an old friend. It's, uh, it's been a great, great study for me. I have, I have always loved studying the life of Peter, because he's really the kind of guy that I can relate to. <clears throat> he had a mouth size of ten and a half wide, you know? He was always putting his foot in it. He was kind of a rough guy in a lot of ways. And he's an example of the fact that God uses all kinds of people. Aren't you glad for that? He uses people who are refined and educated, but he also uses the rough and the ignorant. And Simon Peter was the kind of person that most people would put in the latter category, though he was not a dumb guy. He was a very intelligent man. But he was the kind of guy that always had something to say, even when he should have kept his mouth shut, and that got him in trouble on more than one occasion. And to be honest, he probably wouldn't have been the first man that you or I would have picked if we were on a pulpit committee and he had sent in his resume. He just had that kind of a, a question mark on him from most people's perspective. But that didn't matter to Jesus. Jesus called Peter to follow him, and he said, if you'll follow me, I will make you a fisher of men. And he took this rough, loud-mouthed fisherman from the hill country of Galilee, and he appointed him to be the first pastor of the first New Testament church and gave him the privilege of standing up and preaching on the day of Pentecost. That first day that the Holy Spirit was given to the believers. And God used Peter in a very mighty way. And the change that came over Peter's life through his time with the Lord Jesus Christ is best summarized in Acts 4.13. The council said of Peter and John, it says there, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Peter may not have been very polished in some people's opinion, but through the grace of God, Peter changed. As he learned more about Jesus and as he learned more from Jesus, he grew in grace and in knowledge. The life of Peter is a case study in the power of God to transform an individual who will follow him. We can admire Peter for his loyalty, for his boldness, and for the accomplishments that he saw in his life, 
But we must give God the glory because it was only through the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and His training and ultimately the empowering of the Holy Spirit that Peter became the man that he was. As we look in our text tonight, we find Peter's conclusion to this last letter to the believers. We don't know exactly the dates of when he died or when this was written, but best as we can tell from history, this book was probably written just about one year before Peter died. At any rate, Peter knew that his time on earth was coming to an end very shortly. He said so in this book, in this letter. And so he reminded the believers of several things. And, and in this third chapter, among them is the promise of Christ's return. He warned the believers that there would be scoffers who would mock them for believing in that promise. And he encouraged them to live right anyway. And he wanted to impress upon the believers, those believers, some of whom he had personally pastored, and every one of them whom he loved so much, he wanted them to be impressed with the importance of living holy lives and continually growing for the glory of God while we wait for that blessed hope of the return of Christ. Life is too short to waste our time in frivolous activities or being led astray by false doctrines. We must be growing for the glory of God. So notice with me in verse 14 down through this end of this book how Peter concludes this epistle. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found in him in peace, without spot and blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, under their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know that these, these things before... Beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace, and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. The title of tonight's lesson is Beware and Be Growing. Number one, I want you to notice with me from verses 14 through 15 some truths about our faithful motivations. Our faithful motivations. Now, remember for context here in this third chapter, he's been talking about the return of Christ, that doctrine that many people mock because it's been so long since Jesus was here on earth. Certainly, if he was going to come back, he would have already is the idea that many people have. But Peter assures us, both with the words of the Old Testament Scripture and those words that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write, that the promise of God has not been forgotten but will be fulfilled. And he reminded the believer in verse number 13 that we have something to look forward to, that is, a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. So that's what we are looking forward to and Having reminded the believers of that, he brings our minds back now to the present day. You know, one of the dangers of studying um, 
I shouldn't say danger of studying it, but becoming obsessed with end times prophecy and eschatology, as it's called in a theological term, is, is that if you become too obsessed with that about what's going to happen then, you forget about how you're supposed to be living right now. And so there's a balance there that Peter Peter wants to make sure that we understand. Yes, we have something to look forward to, but right now, while we're waiting, we have some things that we ought to be doing. So he brings our minds back to the present day and instructs us how to live properly in light of that future hope. We do look for such things like a new heaven and a new earth. We look forward to that. But that forward look should never distract us from our present duty. In fact, it should encourage us to live righteously right now. Knowing that that eternal transition could happen at any moment, whether it's through death or the rapture, we could meet the Lord at any moment and we must be ready. That is one of our primary motivations for sanctification, for living purely and living right. The hope of Christ's return and the knowledge of its imminence, that is, that it could happen at any moment, should have a purifying effect on our lives. Listen again to these verses from 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. If you have the hope of Christ's return in you, then you should purify yourself and live righteously right now. Titus chapter 2 says something similar. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. While we are looking forward to Christ's return, we are to be living righteously right now. Peter says that we should strive to live so that when Christ comes, it will be found that our lives are characterized by three things. Notice these. That we might be found in Him in peace, without spot, and blameless. That's how our lives should be. Our lives should be characterized by peace. Peace is that spiritual tranquility that comes when we are in a right relationship with God. I think of it in musical terms. Uh, if you hear uh, two people singing or two instruments playing and they're not in tune to one another, how does that sound? Awful. It's just, you know, fingernails on a chalkboard. just makes your, makes your skin crawl. It's... it's it's just unpleasant because they're not in harmony. But when those instruments or those voices are in tune, the result is, a, is pleasant because there's a, there's a harmony there. Well, the same, same, same thing is true in our lives. When our life is out of tune with God, there's no peace. There's tension. A life of agitation and constant unsettledness is a symptom of a life that is not in harmony with God. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also you call are called in one body and be thankful. Peter said, 
We need to strive to live right now. That means being in a life of peace. Having peace with God. Having the peace of God. and Having peace with others. So much more we could say about that. But notice the second description of how we should live. And that is we are to be without spot. That literally means unblemished. Unblemished. After you jot that word down, turn back a page or two to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 19. 1 Peter 1 and verse number 19. <clears throat> I'll actually begin reading in verse 18, but I want to show you where Peter uses the same word that's translated unblemished in our text tonight. He uses it here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 18, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot. See that? The same word is used there to describe the holiness of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That is the standard by which we should measure ourselves. And that is the criteria that we should evaluate ourselves by. That's, what, that's the goal we're trying to meet here. We talk about being without spot. We're not just talking about being mostly clean. We're talking about being as pure as the spotless Lamb of God. Again, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. While we wait for Christ's return, we should be, our lives should be characterized by peace. It should be characterized being without spot, but then we must also strive to be blameless, he said. The idea of the word here is very similar to the idea of being without spot, but has more of an emphasis on our uh, testimony with other people. The idea of this word is, uh, is used by Paul to describe how we should live in light of the imminent return of Christ. He says in 1 Timothy 6.14, that thou keep his commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unrebukable is the idea here. Not, not able to be rebuked because there's nothing in your life that people can look at and say, aha, that's wrong. You call yourself a follower of Jesus and yet you do this, you say this, you go there, you act this way. You're just a hypocrite. That's the idea here. We should strive to live a life that is pure inside and out. You know, the problem of the Pharisees was is they were really good at making the outside clean. To look at them, you'd think, man, they are the greatest people ever. I mean, they're the most godly people in all the world. But Jesus said the problem is they were a whitewashed grave. Yes, sure, they looked pretty on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. Jesus said the solution is to wash the inside of the cup and the outside of the cup. It's not one or the other. We must be pure inside and out. Some people might construe the, the hope of Christ's return saying, well, you know, we're going to go to heaven anyway, and when we get there, we'll all be sinless, so what does it matter? We can just do whatever we want to right now. Well, that's exactly the wrong attitude. The blessed hope and the return of Christ, the, and our eternity in heaven, should never be an excuse to live loosely or carelessly. 
Shall we continue in sin that God, that grace may abound? God forbid, Romans 6.1. should motivate us to live pure, holy lives for the glory of God. And while we're waiting, we're to maintain a certain perspective. Notice again, back in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. So here's kind of the sum of what he was saying earlier about why hasn't Jesus come back? Because the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So while we're waiting on Jesus to return, we need to live holy lives that are characterized by uh, peace and being without spot and being blameless. And we need to account or think or have the perspective is the idea here that the waiting is part of the evidence of God's mercy. That the, the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. God's patience is our salvation. And, and basically Peter says in verse 15, just like Paul said. And there's a verse in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that very similar. It says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? You know, sometimes I get a little impatient waiting. Do you ever do that? Or am I the only one? You know. <clears throat> no, I think we all struggle with that sometimes. Sometimes we, we're forced to wait, but we don't really like it. And so we wait, but we do it impatiently. Verse 15 is what helps us be patient while we're waiting for the return of Christ, to realize that it is God's patience that allows people an opportunity to be saved in the first place. We are motivated to wait patiently when we understand that the waiting gives others a chance to be saved. If you're ever tempted to be frustrated, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Just remind yourself. The reason God is waiting is to give people an opportunity an opportunity to repent. These are our faithful motivations. Our motivation for waiting patiently is God's patience. And our motivation for living purely is the hope that we have of one day living in heaven, in a sinless, perfect heaven wherein dwelleth righteousness. But notice with me number two what he says in verse 16 about false interpretations. Having mentioned the Apostle Paul in his writings, he says, Paul, Peter says some things in verse 16 that are important for us to understand in this context. He says, also, as also in all his epistles, speaking of Paul's epistles, speaking in them of these things, in the which are some things hard to be understood which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. So speaking of Paul's writing, Peter makes some comments here about the Pauline epistles in general and how some people treat them. Now first, it's noteworthy, I think, for us tonight to, to realize that Peter had a high view of Paul's writings in general. That's, that's important 
seeing that he and Paul were not always on the best of terms. There was one instance in particular that that could have resulted in Peter getting bitter toward Paul. It's recorded for us in Galatians chapter 2. Paul writes there about an occasion where he had to publicly rebuke Peter for causing discord in the church. Galatians 2, turn over there. Let's look at verses 11, 12, and 13. Galatians chapter 2. Verse number 11. So Paul says here, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas was also was carried away with their dissimulation. Wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall of that encounter? I mean, we know the kind of guy that Peter was. He was the guy that whipped out the sword and lopped off the guy's ear in the garden, right? But here's Paul standing up to him and saying, Peter, you're wrong. What you're doing is wrong. You're causing discord in church. By separating from the Gentiles, now because your buddies from Jerusalem have come up, and you're going to think you're going to look bad in front of them, you're not going to eat with the Gentiles anymore. You're creating a division. And it says that he had he withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Now that, Galatians, understand some of the timeline here. Galatians was most likely written 10 years before 2 Peter was written. So, when, when Peter talked about all of Paul's writings and Paul's other writings, it would have included this right here that Paul wrote about Peter. Apparently, though, Peter took Paul's rebuke to heart. I think that's something that he had to learn to do the hard way because there was a couple of occasions that Jesus had to rebuke Peter, remember? Remember that time where Jesus looked at Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan? Remember when Peter said, I'll never deny you. And Jesus said, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows tomorrow morning. Or on the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter said, let's just build some tents and camp out right here. And God Almighty spoke up and said, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. And so when when Paul had to rebuke Peter, Peter was like, okay, yeah, you're probably right. (laughs) I don't know if he responded like that or not. But my point is, He learned how to accept rebuke. And so that now, all these years later, he wasn't offended, he wasn't bitter because he had to be called out. In fact, he demonstrates a tremendous amount of respect for the one who had rebuked him. And the fact that the Holy Spirit would lead Peter to call the writings of Paul Scripture on the same level as Old Testament Scripture is very strong evidence that both the writings of Peter and Paul were inspired of God. Notice something else he said about Paul's writings here. He said that in them are some things that are hard to be understood. I like that. Here's Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, declaring that the things that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit were not easy to understand. I think that should encourage us. 
Keep studying the Bible and don't give up when we find ourselves struggling to understand God's Word. There ought to be times where you're reading the Bible and you don't get it. If you're not having those kinds of moments on a somewhat regular basis, you're not trying very hard. Because the Word of God is so deep, the Word of God is so rich, the Word of God is so vast but there's going to be a lot in here that's hard for us to understand. That's why we need to study so that we might rightly divide it. And this should encourage us that, hey, if Peter said, you know that scripture Paul wrote, whew, whew, that's kind of hard to understand. That our struggle doesn't mean that we're somehow doing it wrong. Peter also wrote about this in his first epistle, 1 Peter 1 verses 10 through 11. He said, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now in that passage, Peter's talking about Old Testament Scripture, and he was saying, hey, there was times, there's, there's passages of Scripture that one of those prophets would be, would be writing down a prophecy about the Messiah, and they would write it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then they would step back and they'd say, huh, I wonder what that means. And they would go back and they would study the scriptures that some of which they themselves may have been used by God to write. <coughs> All of that to say that sometimes understanding scripture can be hard, but don't let that discourage you. The danger is, though, that instead of rightly dividing the scripture, sometimes People will twist and distort the scripture to fit their own ideas, their own wishes, or even worse, their own irrational feelings. Oh, I hate it when I hear the people say, well, I feel like it means this. Well, that doesn't make a difference. What you or I feel like it means. It means what it means. Scripture is not of any private interpretation. Peter's already told us back in the first chapter. <coughs> Excuse me. Peter describes this twisting or the resting. That's the word that's used there. We get our English word wrestle from this word. And, and that's the, the real kind of wrestling, not this nonsense that goes on t television today, but like, you know, Olympic wrestling. What is that? Well, you have, you have two large humans trying to twist each other into submission. <laughs> that's what it is. And Peter says that's what some people do to the Bible. They take the Bible and they say, no, I want it to mean this. And they twist it and they distort it. They take it out of context. They try to make it mean what they want it to mean. And he says the people who do that are, are unlearned and unstable. Your next blank there. The writers of scriptures themselves had to work hard and depend on the Lord for wisdom and understanding of the Bible. Who are we to think that we can get by with little or no effort. Your next blank, a mature, faithful Christian will seek to understand God's word as God gave it, not to find some secret or hidden meaning of their own private interpretation. Now, I will grant, I will grant you that private interpretations will sell a whole lot of books, get a whole lot of views on YouTube. All people love that stuff. 
Let somebody stand up and say, I have discovered a secret in Scripture that hasn't been uncovered in 2,000 years. And people will just flock, practically drooling over themselves. Find out what it is. I've told you before, and I'm telling you again, sometimes the truth is kind of boring. But it's good. Lies and deceit, on the other hand, will destroy us. Because that's what, what Peter says in this verse. They twist and they, they distort Scripture under their own destruction. When we mistreat the Word of God, we do so to our own destruction. Lies lead to destruction. So twisting the truth of God's Word into a lie causes harm to our souls. <clears throat> we miss the blessings of knowing, <coughs> of believing, and of living the truth. And that leads to pain and misery and frustration when we live by lies. <coughs> False interpretations lead to spiritual ruin. And so if we would grow in grace, then we must handle God's word properly. So notice with me number three, the final exhortation. Verse 17, he says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware. Beware. You know, last words are very significant. You could, whole books have been written about last words of famous people. Maybe you have a loved one that's passed away and, and you still remember what their last words to you were, their last words on earth. Those are important. And especially when a person knows that what they're going to say is probably going to be their last words. It's usually pretty significant. And that's certainly true of Peter's words in these verses. And so the two final instructions he gives are a summary of his burden for all believers. To beware and to be growing for the glory of God. First of all, we must beware because why? Well, there are many false teachers out there that are corrupting the gospel message and leading people astray. He said, you know these things. We must beware because the return of Christ is imminent. It could come at any moment. We know these things beforehand. That there are those doing the work and the bidding of Satan, motivated by greed and covetousness that will say whatever they need to say to line their pockets so they can live a luxurious lifestyle. But we have been forewarned. And I like that expression. Forewarned is forearmed. We know beforehand so we can prepare ourselves. We can be ready. We can be on the lookout lest we be led astray and fall from our own steadfastness. To fall from faithfulness. Sounds a lot like what he said in chapter 5 of his first epistle about the devil. He said, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Be on guard. Be on the lookout. Don't be caught unprepared. And listen, Peter knew how easy it was to be overtaken by temptations. He was the one who asserted he would never deny Christ. And then he ended up denying three times just a short while later. He heard Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said, Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. 
The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He saw the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ and heard his voice when Jesus said, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. Peter knew the danger that every one of us faces of falling away from our own steadfastness. And the Holy Spirit used those experiences in Peter's life to give added weight to his admonition, admonition here. Beware. Beware lest ye also. I'm telling you, the longer that the Lord has allowed me to continue in the ministry, the greater of a burden I have had. Just like Peter here to warn people and the reason is the list of friends of mine and people that I personally know who have fallen away, who have rejected the truth of God's word, who've gone off into sinful lifestyles. Some of them just done a complete 180, going the opposite direction. That list just keeps getting longer and longer. I called a good friend of mine the other day. I was talking to him on the phone and... <clears throat> I knew his particular circumstances. And so I asked him a very personal question about how he was doing spiritually. I said, I, I said, I hope you won't mind me getting in your business, but I'm just sick of hearing about my friends falling by the wayside and I want to know how you're doing. And the Holy Spirit says to us tonight through the pen of the Apostle Peter, beware lest ye also. Watching diligently for spiritual dangers is not the only thing we must be doing. While we watch, we must grow. In his final verse here, the last words that he would pen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We grow in grace as we learn more about Jesus as we add to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience kindness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity, as we add the godly characteristics into our life, we're growing. We grow in knowledge as we take heed to that more sure word of prophecy and as we're mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, we grow and we learn more about Jesus. We learn more about God. We learn more about what he wants for us. We learn more about how we should act. We should be constantly growing, constantly learning. At no point in the Christian life can we stop growing. To do so is a sin. At no point can we stop learning because to do so is a sin. It's continual until Jesus comes and our race on earth is finished. We keep growing. We keep learning. And all of this must be done to the glory of God. Peter said to him, be both glory and Be glory both now and forever. You know, Peter's final words there are a fitting end for a man whose life was transformed so radically 
by Jesus. Jesus invited this rough, outspoken fisherman from the hill country of Galilee to follow him and to let Jesus make him into a fisher of men. And as Peter walked with Jesus, Peter changed. He grew. And though he stumbled many times along the way, Jesus never quit on him. He saw Jesus fill his net with fish, so much so that the net was going to break and the boat was going to sink. But that was nothing compared to what he would see later when God would let him see that harvest of souls on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people responded to the invitation of Peter's first sermon and were saved. And so when Peter said to him, be glory both now and forever, that was not just a, a generic conclusion or a formal ending or just a simple doxology. That was Peter's heart's desire. It was his life's motivation. And now it's his epitaph. And we can only say as Peter did. Amen. Heavenly Father, please change us. Make us more like you. And get the glory from our lives that you deserve. And I pray it in Jesus' name.